You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and we're coming to you this week once again a little bit tardy because of uh, situations beyond our control, which it seemed to be ongoing at this point. But joining us, as always, your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, uh, do you want to tell the people a little bit how your last uh, 48 hours have been? Well, it's been an eventful 48 hours, I'll say that. Uh, Woke up. Uh, early Monday morning uh, with my very, very pregnant wife standing next to the bed saying, we are definitely having a baby today. Uh, When you say early, you mean early. Well, she woke up at about 4 a.m. and then did not wake me up until uh, a little before 6. Um, And then we hung out here for a little while, went to the hospital. I'll say, though, she delivered the baby about 2 o'clock that afternoon, mountain time zone, the one true time zone. One true time zone. Uh, did it all without pain medication, without drugs or medical intervention of any kind, just powered through that shit like a damn Viking. Well, we've always known that she has incredible stick to Yeah. I mean, she Maybe is even a little still bit married a, to you, yeah. obviously. So I, I saw even some flashes of brawlability. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, we don't call her the Wolverine for nothing. <laughs> no. The rabid Wolverine. No. She she gritted her teeth and she got through that one and uh, she she pushed our baby daughter into the world. Uh, and, you know, it delayed the podcast coming as it did on podcast recording day. But here we are. We still we're still doing the damn we're still thing here. And so you are 48 hours or so into fatherhood. Less than that. Less than 48 hours. Yeah. You look disheveled. Well, uh, that, I mean, come on, that could be any You're day. dressed like a street bum. Again. That's... How, how has it been so far? Did you have that moment where your daughter was born and you saw her and you were like, oh my God, she's the greatest thing of all time. Yeah. Because that's what happened to me. Yeah, it was weird because I was even trying to psychologically and emotionally prepare myself for that moment. But then when you first see her and you're just like, oh, well, here's a person that didn't exist until my wife and I decided to make her exist with our godlike power. Uh, and, uh, then I had looked around to make sure Poseidon didn't hear that because he would totally smite me down. Uh, but I mean, it is a, uh, a powerful emotional experience that, uh, I, I could not really understand when you were just telling me about it until I lived through it myself. And now I have to spend the next 18 or 20 years just hoping nothing horrible goes wrong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess if, uh, if the podcast seems a little bit more emotional than normal this week, that's. That's why. Just a couple guys in a room pouring their guts out. Per usual this week, the CME comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, Daniel Cormier suddenly has a balloon mind state. He's about to blow up, but does he really have the stuff to fully go pop? In round two, to the winner go the spoils. All of Strike Force's earthly possessions are on their way to the UFC. Which ones might have the biggest impact? And in round number three, Bellator makes its move to Spike this week. Can the number one network for guys, or whatever the fuck they call it, make it into the UFC part two? Uh, all that, plus the normal goodies. You know, but first, though, I, I did want to take a moment to say thanks to uh, all of the people that, that downloaded and listened to and passed on their comments both before and after last week's first episode of the co-main event book club because 
um, you know, that meant a lot to us. We got some positive feedback after it was over, and that was that was good because, uh, you know, I, people probably don't realize this, but we don't always know how this stuff is going to go. No, and we we dived into the. Uh, into the CME book club with little or no plan. And we weren't sure it was going to be a thing that anyone was going to actually listen to. Yeah, we weren't sure any of you were actually going to read it uh, or email us comments. And as my wife pointed out, uh, when she listened to the the book club podcast, and she had not read the book and only heard about it in all its glory from me, uh, and she was amazed and kept saying over and over again how incredible the comments were and how there was some real astute literary analysis yeah. Uh, going on there. Excellent so stuff. thank you, all of you who participated and all of you who listened. Uh, you made that uh, as rewarding as it was, I'm going to say painstaking at times, to make it through Tank Abbott's book. So yeah, uh, long story short, we will probably do another CME book club at some point in the future. Hey, crazy uh, idea. Maybe we pick a book that we actually think might be good. Yeah, we'll pick a book that we think people might enjoy. Maybe we'll solicit readership for there ideas. There you go. I don't know. We got a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in 2013 that if we start implementing even any of it, shit is going to get crazy. Yeah. What's, what does Dana White always say? Just watch what we do. Yeah. Just watch the crazy shit we do. You won't even believe what we do. It's going to be like that at the CME. But first, before we get into any of that, like we always do about this time, a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first question this week comes from Paul Peterson, who writes, Earlier today I read on MMAJunkie.com. Boom. Shameless plug. That Ben, and then he says parenthetically, one of you said he wishes, <laughs> yeah, like, what was he going to say that? And we were going to be like, God, what Ben does Which he mean? Ben? Does, does he... he mean Ben Affleck? Oh, okay. Does he mean... Uh, was Ben Kingston writing something on yeah, was ben, Junkie? Was Ben Kingsley on the show? Yeah. I don't know. That's what I meant, Ben yeah. Kingsley. I don't know if Ben Kingston is a guy. Uh, but... Schindler's List guy. Okay, sure. Uh Ben said he wishes Josh Barnett would come back to the UFC. I thought this was interesting because the baby-faced war machine, again, not Josh Barnett's nickname. Josh Barnett's <laughs> nickname is the War Master. Right? I like this one better. Baby-faced war machine? Yeah. You know what I like? Plague Lord. Josh <laughs> the Plague Lord Barnett. Anyway. Uh, I thought this was interesting because the baby-faced war machine has popped for PEDs three times in his career. How many times do you think you should be allowed to get caught cheating without being kicked out of the big show? Do you believe that the Athletic Commission's punishment is enough? Do you believe in a three-strike rule, or should it be whatever is good for business like it is now? You know, this is a question I found myself pondering. Uh, it's and a good one. I, had to th I was thinking about it today, too. It's the conclusion I eventually came to, which forced me to confront some some difficult truths here is that I am cutting Josh Barnett more slack because one I think that he really is a good heavyweight who uh, I don't think his success is tied to steroid use I think that he has used steroids uh, but I don't think that if you take him off of him he's a completely different fighter I don't see him as like one of those Alistair Overeem guys where he was a beanpole then he got on right. some horse meat, and then he got huge. Right. Uh, I see him probably as more of a uh, Chris Lieben or Tim Sylvia guy who wants to go out there and maybe have some abs uh, and might have figured that was the way to do it. Uh, but number two, here's what I'll admit. I like Josh Barnett. I like him personally. Uh, I've spent time around the guy, talked to the guy a bunch. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Chad Dundas and I do, with Josh Barnett. So uh, we even got to hang out with Josh Barnett at our friend's wedding. Yeah. Uh, 
couple summers ago. So I admit that I am influenced by how I feel about him personally, that I want to see him do well, I want to see him in the UFC, and I am more inclined to take a softer stance on his past steroid use than I am on other guys, and I realize that is wrong, and I am admitting it here to you on the CME podcast. Yeah, I also am a guy who would like to see Josh Barnett back in the UFC. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that me, man, these good heavyweights don't grow on trees. Yeah. You know, you yeah. get the chance to have a top 10 guy in the world's premier MMA organization. I think you kind of got to take it at this point. Um, again, though, I do think he is a dude, not that he gives enough of a damn to ever do this. That's but another he's, issue. He's a dude like Overeem who could really benefit from some transparent drug testing at this point. Because right now, like if you had to guess, Josh Burnett probably not on PEDs at this point because it's cost him in the past. He's been caught three times as the, uh, as the, the, the listener points out. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the guy is probably clean, but you know, like Overeem, I think he could really benefit in from a, from signing up for, for WADA or, or USADA or, you know, any of the, uh, uh, independent and more transparent and respected anti-doping agencies that would that would prove it to people because yeah. there's always going to be that black cloud that kind of hangs over his career uh until he does that and so i think it would be awesome but like i said he's the kind of guy that like for a long time it didn't seem like he cared that much about fighting period and i still think he's the kind of guy who is going to be kind of like, well, I'm just going to do what I do and fuck everybody else. Yeah, and it seemed like that was kind of the tenor of his post-fight remarks as well, was that, hey, yeah, I, I would like to go in the UFC. Not enough to beg for it. Not enough even to really try and make it sound like it's important to me. Right, um, which was this whole thing the whole time that he was kind of blackballed from Zufa was every time anybody would ask him, he kind of made it sound like he didn't give a shit. And yeah. like he was sort of like, they know where I am. They've got my number. They can call me if they want. And, and you know what? That until was a, then, I'm going to keep beating up bums in Australia. Yeah, and that was a much stronger negotiating position as an MMA heavyweight, you know, four or five years ago. Yeah, it's not anymore because yeah. while I would really like to see Josh Barnett in the UFC. Uh, the UFC doesn't absolutely have to have Josh Barnett, especially you know if you have Daniel Cormier, who we all saw recently put a thumping on Josh Barnett. You know how Dana White will play that one. He'll just say, well, hey, Barnett doesn't want to play ball. Uh, he's a steroid cheat. Screw him. I got this guy who beat him anyway. So uh, you know, isn't that isn't that the guy you want? The the guy who who won in that that Grand Prix tournament. You know, then that'll probably convince a lot of fans that yeah, hey, who cares? Let Josh Barnett go pro wrestle. Let him beat up all the Nandors he can get his paws on. Uh, who cares? But, you know, it is it is uh, hypocritical of me to be hard on some PED users and not others just because, personally, I like them. Uh, however, at the same time, like this guy's saying, what do we want to do a three-strikes-you're-out rule in MMA? I don't know if we do. Because if we do, if we do start leveling that, you know, that criteria across the board... Uh, might lose more guys than you realize yeah and if you want to talk about the reality of this situation obviously i think that drug testing in mma should be dramatically stepped up and i would love to see a system where we were as certain as we could possibly be that all the guys were clean but at this point you can't keep a guy out for testing positive because they're about to give alistair over him a shot at the ufc heavyweight title right. as long as he gets through antonio silva in february and if Alistair Overeem should happen to win the UFC heavyweight title. 
I think we're going to have to all of us have a long look in the mirror and it's going to be a big test, I think, for MMA journalists. Yeah. And be, and we're going to have to see how we all handle that, because if we just go on with our lives and pretend like everything's fine, then I don't know how we will look each other in the eye. Well, honestly. I think we should we should go on with our lives. We should not stop our lives. Not me, man. <laughs> develop an unhealthy obsession with this shit. <laughs> Uh, the second question this week comes from Patrick, who says, Watching football this weekend with several groups of people, I noticed how people always have weird, superstitious reactions to watching sports. One guy watching the Broncos game at my house had to leave the room because he said, quote, The Broncos never play well when I'm watching them, as he put it. It made me wonder why... I and others never get that way for fighting sports. I get anxious when I don't want one of my favorite fighters to lose, but I never watch my fight in my, quote, lucky seat, uh, my right hand in the air, because I feel if I have some kind of magic connection to the events. Do you guys agree, and why do you think this is? That's an interesting question. It's offbeat. That's, that, I, that's why I like it. That is offbeat. One thing that makes it difficult, I think, for you and I to watch, for, for to answer this is because when we're watching uh, – as journalists, we don't necessarily want to see one guy win over another. Yeah, in fact, it's really hard to have an emotional connection to what's happening anymore. Yeah. Every once in a while, you'll see a fight where, for whatever reason, you feel like you wouldn't mind seeing one of those dudes take an ass-kicking. Right. You feel like he, either he's got it coming or you know, if there was any kind of karmic justice in the world, something bad would happen to him. Uh, but that's pretty rare, and it usually doesn't happen anyway. I don't know. You know... I think one of the things with fighting that makes it different is, you know, if you're like a Denver Broncos fan, for instance, you want to see the Denver Broncos win, especially in the playoffs, because they lose, you don't get to see them anymore until the next season. Uh, and if they win, you have some kind of bragging rights. It's much more like regionally tied. Like, yeah. like I remember when I was living in New York the year the Giants won the Super Bowl, and before they won the Super Bowl, everybody I encountered in New York City was a Jets fan, it seemed. <laughs> and then the night they won the Super Bowl, you could hear a bunch of drunk idiots out on the street saying, yeah, fucking Giants, all right! You know, and it was just like, suddenly, everybody wants to be behind a winner in like that kind of city-oriented team sports. I don't really feel like that exists with fighting because you just kind of choose your guys. It's not like a, a hometown kind of thing. And even if your guy loses, especially in MMA, where losing is, you know, everybody loses sometimes. Right. Uh, you're still going to see him again. It's not like he goes away for a, a longer period of time. If anything, if he becomes a champion, you will see him less often. Right. You know, it's not like a kind of thing like where your fandom is being rewarded if the guy becomes champion. The same way as if, you know, this hometown team that you supported wins the Super Bowl and you kind of feel like somehow weirdly a part of it. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point just in how MMA deals with wins and losses because it's kind of weird as in, in the sports world. Um, it's almost like... You know, wins and losses are important, and uh, I, I always say that, that the point of the fight is to win, and you should try to do that any way you can. Cheat. Especially to cheat. But, you know, we, we've we've come to this point in the sport where we know that, like you said, everyone loses, and it's almost like, at times, wins and losses aren't the end-all, beat-all, you know? We've talked about before on the podcast the, the great mind-bending who's the greatest light heavyweight of all time or who's the who's the better light heavyweight randy couture chuck liddell or quentin rampage jackson the the mind bender because there's no correct answer really unless you say randy couture uh, <laughs> so i think that that's part of it and and also i mean what do you think about it being an individual sport do you feel like i think 
I'm just floating this. I just thought of this. So maybe it's not right. But like, I feel like the fact that it's an individual sport where the results are so impendent on one dude out there that it almost uh, undermines superstition in a way, at least superstition from like the outsider looking in like where if you There's watch a ton fo- of superstition on the inside. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, but like if you watch football or baseball or, or any team sport, I feel like you almost feel more involved and like, you don't really know, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It just seems like it's, you're able to be more superstitious for whatever reason, rather than, well, you know, that it's just one guy who goes out there and he's completely in charge of whether or not he wins yeah. and loss, wins or like, loses. you know, like where you're watching the, the Pittsburgh Steelers and you're like, well, Hey, I really like Troy Palomalo, so I hope their defense does well. But then Ben Roethlisberger is a rapist, so I hope that he gets murdered. Now we're just free associating. Okay. Uh, the next question this week comes from Ryan Kane, who asks, Do you see any way with Viacom's financial backing that Bellator could be able to lure fighters away from the UFC with their, quote, you control your fate format in the future? Of course, the UFC is the major leagues, but where Bellator ranks in fighters' minds going forward, we don't know. Let's just use Alan Belcher as an example. The guy puts together a string of wins, but just somehow can't get his name in the title picture, loses, and then drops a couple of rungs. Do you guys feel, in the future, some UFC fighters may get fed up with the preferential treatment for some fighters and say Bellator might be a better place to become a world champion? Short answer, yes. Long answer, I think it's already kind of happening. Uh, And I'll tell you, we'll get into this more when we talk about Bellator in round three, uh, but... I am working, putting together a story for uh, USA Today this week about Long. Bellator's first, uh, their, their premiere on Spike TV on this Thursday night, uh, September 17th, I believe it is. Um, I talked to Michael Chandler about this because he was a dude who, who fought for Strikeforce a couple times uh, before signing with Bellator, and now he's the lightweight champion. And I was kind of curious about what went through his mind as far as weighing the pros and cons of what was out there for him. And he said that... When he was looking at you know a, a longer future with Strikeforce, and this is before they got bought out by Zufa, uh, and then also before Bellator uh, was you know Viacom is now a, a majority uh, shareholder and majority owner in uh, Bellator. Um, before any of that, and he was looking at them, kind of trying to decide between them, and he said that tournament format was the thing that swung him because it was Bellator could tell him, look, here's what you have to do. Here, here's the if you win these many this many fights. Then you'll get a shot at the champion, you know, a top five or top ten ranked guy, depending who you ask, and Eddie Alvarez. Uh, and, you know, you get to decide your future. It's not like you have to win and also you have to hope that they like you well enough to push you. Uh, and, you know, some of those things click into place for you. So hmm. that was a, a big part of his decision making, he said, why he decided to go with Bellator. Uh, because he could see there's a clear path. You know what you have to do. And that was now I think it is only going to increase if they can tell people, look, we're on spike. You know, we're in 100 million homes. It's going to make it easier for you to get sponsorships, uh, especially if they actually can make it easier on guys to get sponsorships, uh, you know, as opposed to the the way the UFC has done it. Uh, I think that stuff really can make a difference. Maybe not with everybody, but enough. That's interesting because I was going to say no because of the tournament format, because I feel like... uh, I think I've talked about it a little bit in the past that the tournament format at the start for Bellator, I think was really advantageous because it kind of set them apart in the, in the market. And it was something that fans could grab onto and, and everybody loves a tournament. Um, but anymore, I feel like being shackled to this tournament format is really kind of, uh, 
you know, a bad thing for Bellator because if you look at a guy, say, for example, like King Mo, who's going to be involved in the Bellator light heavyweight tournament, um, he's a guy that if he came to the UFC and he lost his first fight, we would all be like, oh, you know, whatever, octagon jitters, he'll come back, he'll fight somebody else. Now, if King Mo doesn't fucking win the Bellator light heavyweight tournament, that's going to look like a huge loss for him. And people are going to be like, oh, maybe he's not as good as we thought he was. Maybe King Mo just sucks like everyone does every time somebody loses a fight. So for me, especially now that they have the, uh, the thing where they can... Uh, invoke an immediate rematch against the champion apparently at will uh it kind of seems like i would think that that's a, a worse option going to bellator because you know you go to the ufc you win one or two fights maybe they'll give you a title shot i mean i, I guess this is maybe only for high profile guys this is also you're asking fighters to think about a world in which they no, will yeah. not win absolutely every you're right you're right fight. and i realized that while you were talking that i'm not I wasn't properly channeling the you're, fighter yeah. mentality. You're because thinking of course, about this like every a regular fighter person. in that tournament thinks like, oh, well, I'll just fucking win the tournament. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just be the beat everybody's champion, fucking ass. And everything will be different. And all yeah. the pussies down at the bar will know I'm the man. <laughs> no, yeah. Your, your problem was approaching this from a, a reasonable person's perspective. And maybe that works for Bellator too. Because, hey, if you're the kind of guy who thinks like, yeah, well, I can win one or two, and then I'm going to lose one, but then I'm going to win one or two again, and you know, in this way, I'll kind of stay somewhere there in the middle and be able to keep making a living. First of all, if you think like that, you probably don't become a pro fighter to begin with. Uh, and second of all, if Bellator ends up only attracting the kind of people who are either actually good enough or just playing crazy enough to assume like, oh, well, yeah, if there's a tournament of any kind, obviously I will be the winner, then isn't that better for them don't they want those kind of people that's a solid point but i mean if i'm that dude's manager let's say okay then i might be like i don't know man this seems like a high stakes like low reward kind of situation for you because now in bellator even if you advance through this entire tournament that takes several weeks and then you be the champion bellator could still be like uh guess what motherfucker do it again. Yeah. I think this is going to really uh, play out differently in different weight classes. Because I think in some of the weight classes, like lightweight, if you're looking at going to the UFC, especially right now, and you look at all the, the talent they have at lightweight, and you're thinking, man, what do I have to win? Six or seven fights in a row uh, before people start talking about me for a title shot? And, and six or seven really tough fights? Like, I could win fights for the next two and a half years and still not be at that title shot point, especially if I come in off a reality show or something, I could still be making like, you know, 40 and 40 or something in that case, then, Hey, you might be better off in a, in a smaller field because the tournament's only going to be so big. If you go to Bellator in some other weight classes, it might be a different story. All right. Well, Oh hell, let's do one more question. We barely prepared for this episode. We can stretch this out a little bit. Uh, this episode or this this uh, question, the last question this week comes from Darcy Ledrew, who writes. Sounds like a teenage detective, by the way. Don't you think, Darcy Ledrew? If Darcy if Darcy Ledrew is not solving mysteries, he or she should. I have Dar- no idea. Is that, a, is that a- Darcy Ledrew writes? Have been watching a lot of Pride in my free time as I battle a bad cold and have begun to love its Grand Prix. It seems to give the opportunity for up-and-comers to upset legends and more elite fighters who wouldn't have fought them otherwise. The UFC has long abandoned tournaments. Parenthetically, I wouldn't call the recent flyweight title scramble a tournament, and Bellator seems to be taking it to another extreme. What do you guys consider to be 
the advantage of MMA tournaments and their drawbacks. I feel if they are done sparingly, say, one Grand Prix a year, alternating between weight classes, they could be a unique MMA event. It would give a lot of credibility to a number one contender. They could also be used to hype the less popular lightweight classes to the public. Or they could be total shit shows. Uh, I guess it also depends what weight class you do. We saw what happened when Strike Force tried to do the heavyweight Grand Prix, which was yeah. ambitious. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> it was a Sorry, fucking but... dumpster fire is what it was. <laughs> I love a good dumpster fire. I don't know what you're talking about. The thing, though, about the Pride Grand Prix, I feel like, especially with Pride, we get this golden glow of nostalgia when we look back and we can get out the old Pride DVDs after you had too much to drink or, you know, you're battling a head cold, whatever. Uh, and, get well, Darcy, by the way. <laughs> and, you know, you, you get those out and you start watching them and you forget how, remember when they used to do it, it would, they would come out with the opening round pairings and, you know, Vanderly Silva would get somebody he was obviously going to murder and then they would see who got through in those opening round pairings, and then they decide what the next round would look like, so they could give Vanderlei Silva somebody easy again, right. and you know, and create like the you know put Sakuraba and whatever fight it seems like he is most likely to be killed in, um, because for some reason they just love that. There was all that kind of like weird stuff with the Pride Grand Prix, so and we we tend to minimize that stuff now. There was a lot of weird shit that happened there. I think even now, within different age of MMA, with injury withdrawals and all that kind of stuff, I mean, I'm amazed all the time that Bellator has not dealt more with uh, losing key guys to injuries because that that shit can derail an entire tournament and make it feel completely hollow by the time you get to the finale. Yeah, I'm gonna say I agree wholeheartedly in in the principle. With Darcy LaDrew's... Uh, it's a fun idea. Yeah, a letter to the podcast. But in practice, I, I kind of think it's the, an idea that, that, you know, is maybe best left back in those halcyon days of, of pride. Uh, just because of all the things you said. The, the, the Strike Force Grand Prix was a, was a disaster of sorts. Although I guess it did sort of springboard Daniel Cormier into the, the position that he's in now. Uh, and, and I think that... The risks you take, especially with, you know, the proliferation of MMA media and there's so much more scrutiny on how, th how, how things are done now. Uh, I just think that, that you would be inviting more criticism maybe than it would be worth just in terms of like injuries and, and people talking about chicanery in the. Because remember when. Skullduggery? Skullduggery in the process. Because remember when Strike Force released the like. Their bracket. The yeah. bracket and like how they would deal with ties or like they had like some kind of weird competition committee. Yes. And everybody read it and they were just like, man, what the fuck is this? This is the weirdest <laughs> fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I just think that the, the whole thing would be kind of fraught with with danger almost in a way for a promoter. But it is like adventurous in a crazy, reckless sort of way, which you have to give them credit for. And that, that there's something fun about that. I guess the reason the UFC shies away from it is because... What does the UFC really have to gain? Yeah. The UFC doesn't need that kind of stuff. It, it's doing pretty well with just the, you know, pick one guy to fight for the title and then hype the shit out of it. They're doing pretend pretty, like that was the most reasonable choice all along and everybody knew it. They're doing pretty well with uh, not deciding the guy who they want to win the tournament before it starts, too. Which is yeah. <laughs> if you don't something... think Vitor Belfort deserves to fight for the light heavyweight title, then you are insane. Anyway, that's going to do it for our intro portion of the show. If you have a question, a comment, a concern, a, a note to drop to the podcast, you can do that by going to our website, 
comaineventpodcast.com and clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to roll straight into round number one. Round one. Well, Ben, Daniel Cormier uh, took care of business this past weekend, like we all thought he would in TCBN? his, his uh, thankless, sort of no-upside final strike force fight against Dion Starring. Starring. Did you notice how I nailed it there? Yeah. Because I got, I got to hear other people say it out loud. Yeah, all you need in order to get the pronunciation down right, and this would be a note to future uh, email writers for the podcast, if Chad can hear your name between 30 and 45 times on a live uh, TV broadcast, boom, he nails it. Yeah. That's all he asks. So beef- on, notwithstanding, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, so Cormier beats Dion Starring like we all thought he would, like he was supposed to, like, the, like Chalk said he was going to, and then jumps on the mic and essentially calls out John Jones, says he's going to kick his ass which I thought a uh, little bit uncharacteristic, maybe, of, of the low-key Daniel Cormier. So my question to you is, has he just been waiting for this the whole time, just like biding his time until he got into the UFC, and now he's about to crank it up till 11, uh, really start the, the PR blitz? Like, is Dan, Daniel Cormier, I mean, we all know he's smart. Is this what he's up to? Is he, is he getting ready for the UFC, kind of bringing his A game out now? You know, I didn't feel like that was so over the top that it was like Daniel Cormier was going all Chael Sonnen on us. It didn't seem like that to me. I, I believe that, you know, for one thing, Daniel Cormier is a wrestler. You know that, that wrestler-type mentality to begin with, that uh, they all believe that they are the toughest motherfucker to ever walk the earth. So, you know, he already had some of that. And, yeah, he comes off as kind of a aw shucks uh, humble dude, but he was the U.S. wrestling team captain uh, in the Olympics. So obviously he thinks he's pretty good. And the evidence has shown that he's pretty good. So I don't think we should be that surprised. You know, I think maybe it was a, an instance of he gets kind of held back in strike force for long enough. He has to do this, this Dion staring fight. And okay, he's had enough of that bullshit. Now he wants to kind of jump to the fast track. And he kind of laid out the entire next year for himself. Yeah. Like, I'm going to yeah. fight Frank Mir. That's, uh, you're actually anticipating my next question, which, which was, uh, well, I mean, I think certainly the, the first thing that, that I thought when Cormier jumped on the mic and, and, and laid out his long-term plan for success in the octagon was, Oh, well, I guess he's had some fairly extensive conversations with the UFC about his future. Uh, the second thing I thought was, man, he's really kind of glossing over the fact that they both have to win a fight before yeah. we could even start talking about that as a, Aren't we as all a possibility. Glossing over that, though, I guess. But like you, this is mixed martial arts, man. You know how it works. Like one of those dudes. Like if you have a, if you have built the world's greatest mousetrap, and all you got to <laughs> do is is get over one last hurdle for for it to 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 spring into action, something's gonna go wrong. Yeah. We all know that. The MMA gods don't let you get too big before they, they crack the whip on you. That's fair. I I would think that the UFC had to be really happy to have someone get out there and say, not only do I want to fight John Jones, but I'm going to kick his ass uh, on TV like that. Because and, and someone who actually has a reasonable chance of doing it. In other words, someone not Chael Sonnen. Uh, I think that the UFC has got to be really thankful for that kind of thing because... Uh, that's kind of been the 
one of the it's like that Ronda Rousey story that, that Dana White always tells about how hey this person's getting the fight because no one else wanted it. I called these other people. They kept saying no. Nobody wants to fight her. There's a similar thing around John Jones where a lot of people are saying like yeah he's the champ. I'd like to fight him. Like Alexander Gustafson saying yeah you know I want I want to fight the ch- for the title. I want to fight the champ. But if you give me another fight between now and then, you know another chance to make some money against somebody who is not John Jones, I won't say no to that. I won't be too mad. You know it's nice to have somebody get up there and be like I'm going to kick John Jones's ass, uh, and have it feel like something he actually believes rather than something he is saying as part of a character. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's great, and I think it's like it's almost a super fight in a way, even though we've seen you know very little in a way from Cormier and uh, uh, not at all from him at light heavyweight, which is uh, my problem. with Right. That's another point is that Cormier has always been, like we said, nice guy, easy to like great story seems to be able to back it up in the cage, but he's always act acted really downright salty when anyone even tiptoed around the subject of going to light heavyweight or like, uh, implied or even if he thought someone implied that he was too small for heavyweight that kind of gets his hackles up and so now well, goes to the UFC maybe big money opportunity yeah. big big super fight almost against John Jones suddenly boom light heavyweight Daniel Cormier is I in the house it's less about that now than it is that his teammate is the heavyweight champ and so what do you do your options are fight your teammate Wait around for your teammate to lose the belt, which, if history is any indicator at heavyweight, really shouldn't take that long. Uh, or go to another weight class and try your chances there. And he's already, you know, Dana White was already talking about that he might like him better at light heavyweight to begin with. So there's already that that kind of buzz around, hey, maybe this guy should drop weight and take his chances there. Uh, also, I think a lot of people will bring up Daniel Cormier, uh, you know, him making the weight in the Olympics. Uh, that was the thing that knocked him out of uh, the Beijing Olympics was that he made the weight but then went into you know, full-on kidney failure after that. And I talked to Kevin Jackson, who was the coach of the U.S. Olympic team at the time, and he was saying that uh, he thinks Daniel can absolutely make the weight, but the problem was he was making it the wrong way for a long time. He was letting his, himself get too far above the weight uh, and then cutting it and all the you know, using all the wrestler guy tricks to cut the weight rather than dieting down close uh, and and then making it, you know, the safer way. And he'd been doing it that way for a long time and it just caught up with him at the absolute worst time. Um, and I think it still bothers him now. I was at a, like a pre-fight kind of hanging out in the hotel dinner with some of the AKA guys. I, I think it was when uh, Cormier fought Bigfoot Silva in the Grand Prix. It was like in that, yeah, that one in uh, Cincinnati. And... A couple of the other AKA guys were ribbing Cormier about not being able to make that weight. But, you know, because he was something, he was saying something like, oh, I could fight at 205 at some point. And I think it was like Luke Rockhold and some of the other guys were like, oh, hey, come on. Last time you tried that, it, it damn near killed you, didn't it? And I talked to him about it afterwards and he was saying, you know, I know that they're, they're just joking and they're busting balls the way guys will, like in a group. But as soon as anybody brings that up, man, it just kills me. It I imagine me. it would, yeah. yeah. Especially for, like you said, the wrestler yeah. mentality. Uh, well, and certainly, I mean, he's not a huge dude. He looks like a light heavyweight when when you see him, and he looks like a dude who could lose the weight. I guess. Is I mean, the, he's still going to be at a, a height and reach disadvantage against John Jones. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Do you think he's a guy who comes in 
pretty hyped at this point. In fact, we got a Twitter message this week that I wanted to talk a little bit about from uh, Terry Shalito, who's a guy who who corresponds with the both yes, of us a couple yeah. times. Are you going to use oh, this yeah. for the mailbag? No. Okay. No, I know Terry. I, I wanted to bring this up. He sent us this tweet that I don't even know if you saw it because obviously you were having a baby. But uh, it says, three, three fighters whose stock will plummet in 13. I did see Cormier, this. Melendez, Pettis, and then agree, question mark. And I think that those are three really good choices to start. But I feel like it's almost unfair yeah. to put Cormier and Melendez in that list because, well, fuck, man. Both those guys have to win the UFC championship yeah. or else their stock is going to plummet because they're already that hyped. They're already up there at the top of the, yeah. of the top ten rankings. And I, I thought the same thing. Anything, anything other than becoming the UFC champion pretty much immediately and their stock plummets. So, yeah. But uh, I think when you look at Cormier and you look at that, okay, say he goes in there, I think I really like his chances to beat the hell out of Frank Mir. Uh, so... You know, I, that one I don't think is, is too great of a long shot. But can he beat John Jones is the thing, because are we doing the thing? Well, I guess we're just going to gloss over the fact that they both have to win yeah, fights before we're that. Gloss over that. Uh, but can he beat John Jones? Because I like Cormier a lot. I, he's, he's, he's really highly rated at heavyweight right now. But are we doing the thing with him where we anoint these guys and make them uh, larger than life, put him up on a pedestal when we haven't really seen that much from him in the same way we did for Junior Dos Santos before yeah. uh, the second fight with Cain Velasquez. I know that really bothers you when, when the Well, MMA we do it every time. I know, every I know. time. <laughs> I know we do. And here's what I'll say about that. I'm not saying that I look at Daniel Cormier and I feel like that's the dude who beats John Jones. Absolutely. He is the the coming messiah at light heavyweight what i do feel though is when i look around at the possibilities he is what at least in the top two of dudes who i want to see try yeah no he i mean with john jones at this point it's sort of a take what we can get type situation where well i'd a hundred percent rather watch him fight cormier than fight a middleweight or, yeah. And Cormier probably right now, I would think, maybe has a better shot than even, you know, those other guys that they're that are being bandied about at 205. Yeah, like I mean, Alexander I, Gustafson and, and Glover Tashira or Leota Machida. Well, we've seen that. <laughs> Let's not do that yeah. again. We already okay. know how that happens. But how it, I mean, there seemed to be a, uh, enough excitement about John Jones versus Dan Henderson. Right. So how would there not be? Like, what would be the, the difference in seeing Daniel Cormier, also a wrestler, dude who can also hit hard, around the same size, a little bigger than Dan Henderson, uh, and, you know, probably a better wrestler, maybe not with as much MMA experience, but hell, who, who the hell does? Uh, I mean, and but younger. Right. Well, I mean, like, I think... Why would you want to see Dan Henderson fight John Jones and not Daniel Cormier? The excitement with Henderson, I think, was a little bit... I don't want to say misplaced, but he's been so good in his last few fights that uh, there's some excitement there. And again, it was a situation of like, well, hell, we got to have somebody fight yeah. John Jones. And Henderson at the time was probably about as good as you were going to do. That said, stylistically, I don't think that's a tough matchup for John Jones. I really don't. I think it's it's less dangerous than his last light heavyweight fight against uh, Rashad Evans, just because of how the how the style. Well, let me say this. More dangerous, but less challenging in a way, because Henderson can knock you out, but that's sort of all he's going to bring to the table against Jones, because 
and this is the difference I think between Dan Henderson and Daniel Cormier would be when was the last time you saw Dan Henderson take somebody down? Like when was the last time you saw him use his wrestling game and go out there and ground John or anybody and put him on his back, which I think is what it would take for him to be competitive against Jones because you're not getting inside that reach to land the H bomb or well, whatever we're calling it. Whereas I, I, I think, think Daniel Cormier uses his wrestling and, and, and is, is as high a level wrestler as we have at heavyweight. If anyone's going to be able to push John Jones in the grappling, it should be Cormier unless he's just too small. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things stylistically with Dan Henderson is uh, he will just haul off and launch that right hand against dudes who he does not worry about taking him down that much or against dudes who he feels like if they do take him down, uh, once they get there, he's not in too much trouble. Like when he fights, you know, uh, Michael Bisping or, or even Shogun Hua, who did manage to take him down, uh, he doesn't worry that much about uh, leaving himself open for the takedown and, and kind of gets a little more aggressive and a little wilder with his stand-up, which helps him. Uh, against John Jones, I don't know if you really want to open up like that. It could be a lot worse for you. So, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the thing with Daniel Cormier is not that, hey, this is the dude. This is the guy who's going to, you know, I wouldn't pull the sword from the stone. No, I think he would be a, an underdog in that fight. But damn, I want to see that fight. I yeah, mean, yeah, it's way, the best we're going to get. Yeah. It's the best we're going to get because we're not going to get Anderson Silva. I want to so see that one well get this one. more than uh, Alexander Gustafson. Yeah. I think with Alexander Gustafson, what a lot of people are doing is saying, ah, you're tall, he's tall. Shit. Let's see it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. But uh, I think the, the thing with Daniel Cormier, again, uh, to, to kind of circle back to our original, what started this discussion is – Okay, now he's finally freed from the strike force spawns. Uh, he came to the sport a little late as it is. Maybe he wonders how much long he has in it. You might as well start reaching for the brass ring now, right? Yeah. I, no. That's what I think is more behind him calling out John Jones. Uh, and especially because he knows, hey, if people are going to keep asking me about it, instead of saying, I'll take whoever they give me and I'll take it one fight at a time, it's a lot more fun if you go out there and say, well, I'm going to kick Frank Mir's ass and then I'm going to kick John Jones's ass, even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you to be like, I'm going to fight one more time at heavyweight and then I'm going to go down and challenge for the title at light heavyweight. That's still a little weird, but okay. Ah, right, we'll see how it goes at the UFC on Fox 7 next month or whenever. Whatever. Uh, coming up right now, we're going to go ahead and segue directly into round number two. Round two. Which had elsewhere on Saturday night's final Strike Force event. It wasn't just Daniel Cormier putting a whooping on a dude in a beret. There was some other action going on. Uh, we saw, as we mentioned before, uh, Josh Barnett uh, overcame the Plague Lords to defeat Nandor Guelmino. Right. Notice you don't say overcame Nandor Guelmino. No. It, I think the Plague Lords was obviously the, the, the biggest barrier there. You know what was awesome about that fight, though, was... Nandor Gulmino being like putting his hand up in the air and being like, dude, just lock it up and I'll tap. <laughs> just just put the yeah. put the choke on, man. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get out of here. Gonna go get some wings. Yeah. At the at the casino restaurant after this. Well, we had that. We had uh in the main event, 
Tarek Safadine winning one for the home team. Yeah. Bringing great. it on back to Strike Force Challengers. Great way to end Strike Force as a promotion. Yeah, it really was. Uh, just leg kicking the shit out of Nate Marquardt. Besides, uh, maybe we can kind of just let Nate Marquardt go now. You think maybe? Or like, no, he's going to show up. He'll, he, be, he'll be back. He's going to show up. We're going to have to see him again. Again, though, uh, if if you're Dana White and you want to feel like you know, you're know you always right about stuff, you watch that fight and you say, I knew Nate Marquardt was a choker. How many times have I said it? Nate Marquardt chokes in the big fights. And I'm what sh- is more, the the fewer guys that we can have around where someday some media outlet can point and be like, see, they knew these guys were on performance-enhancing drugs, and they okayed it, just like they're doing with Lance Armstrong and the U- International Cycling Union right now. It's not what you want. Hey, what he's off it? He's off the TRT. Well, Nate's off right. the TRT. Yeah, no, he, he does uh, some juice or something. Yeah, he does something else now, Risen. even though yeah. it would have killed him before not to do it. Yeah. Anywho. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, Strike Force is over. We saw this weird kind of final event where everybody wants to to use it as their springboard into the UFC. It's still unclear exactly who will and who won't. Uh, as you watch the final event in Strike Force unfold and you watch everybody kind of make their case for the UFC, who do you see? Who do you see from that crop of, of Strike Force irregulars uh, making their way over into the octagon? Well, I'm going to go, first guy I'm going to go with, maybe a little bit of a deep cut, but just because he's not the champion anymore, is Jacare, because he looked super badass against Ed Herman, uh, who, you know, full disclosure, took the fight on, on pretty short notice, but uh, came in and, and you know, pr- prior to the his loss to uh, Jake Shields, which had been converted to the no contest because of some sort of skullduggery that we're still not 100% sure on in the in the Shields camp. Uh, Ed Herman had been on a nice little run in the UFC, and uh, Jacare handled his business against he Ed Herman. And He's been handling his business a lot lately. He has, and you know he lost that uh, what was a close fight against Luke Rockhold, but a mm-hmm. fight that Jacare lost. Let's be honest. Like I, you know, I thought. I, it was, I mean, I would not have been outraged if that one had gone the other way, but uh, okay. Right, but that but, was a close fight. But you know, um, but then his last fight before this one knocked out uh, Derek Brunson. Yeah, he of the uh, the post fight victory scream against Chris Lieben. Uh, you know, then that's the kind of thing you really wanted to see from Jacare, right? Is him knocking somebody out, proving that he can do more than just take you down and submit you. Yeah, no. The thing I really like about him is he's really athletic, like really highly athletic. Uh, he's the kind of guy that that you can just tell probably picks up various skills really, really fast, both striking and grappling. And, and you look at him and you're like, if I was going to make one of those t-shirts that makes it look like I have like this super ripped torso, you know, the t-shirts I'm talking about. Yeah. Come down, down to your boardwalk. knees. Right. Yeah. That's the torso you'd want to use. Absolutely. That dude is in yeah. shape. And one, I feel like one of the most impressive things he does is the alligator walk at the end <laughs> of the, at the end of the fight. Because if I tried to do an alligator walk, I would blow out a shoulder immediately yeah. or something, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive. If we if we were gonna have a a draft, a strike force draft, I would be hard pressed to think of a guy I would take before Jacare because I think that he has a really really high ceiling. That said, I think there's some other guys that also have really high ceilings. Uh, Luke Rockhold, for example, who I think can come in and is another dude who just seems like he's so athletic that that the sky's the limit for him a little bit. What I wonder is what of Tarek Safadi. Oh, yeah. What of the well, last Strike Force welterweight champion ever? Well, yeah, I mean, he's a guy who 
was probably on the bubble in the same way that maybe a dude like uh, Pat Healy was on the bubble. and Which is uh, weird, though, because he fought in the main event in the title fight. Right, but I think we... I, yeah, no, but I mean, was, I don't disagree with you. Yeah. And it's still, even now, I feel like it's weird because it's like, okay, he won that fight. He leg kicked the hell out of Marquardt. Uh, I believe, uh, as you pointed out, Ron Kruk... Uh, Wondered aloud, at what point does Marquardt's leg literally explode? Yeah, uh, we don't want to. Do at no that. point, Ron. At no <laughs> point. Not from leg kicks. Well, and we talked earlier about Bellator and how with the automatic rematch clause, Bellator has this thing where they're like, oh, yeah, you won? Okay, prove it. Like, do it again. Safadine is in the same sort of position. Not that he'll have to have fight Marquardt again, because I think Marquardt was, a, was certainly a clear-cut victory for him. Although the way the judges... The judging was going that yeah, night. Who knew? You, you didn't know. Uh, Safadine is in this position now where he's going to have to come into the UFC and everybody's going to look at him like, oh, okay, well, now prove it. Now, you know, win another big fight or, 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 or do something that, that proves to us that you really do belong here. Because even though he was in the main event, like you said, he's still a total dark horse kind of coming out of, of Strike Force Challengers where he began and kind of working his way up to this point where, where he would fight for the, for the welterweight title. Um, but yeah, it's feel feel good, feel good moment for him. But the, the thing was, when we all assumed that Nate Marquardt was going to win, and then it was like everybody was already asking, like, but will he fight GSP when he gets when he gets to the UFC? Will you know? Is he going to fight GSP right away? Will he have to wait? You know, a little while. Will he have to take a fight in between then? You know, it was just kind of like a given. Like, well, Marquardt's coming over with a full head of steam because he's the champion over in Strike Force. Then he loses. He gets beat by Tarek Safany. I don't hear anyone being like, all right, so Tarek Safadine would be next in line, right, obviously, for, for the welterweight title. Like, no one's even even talking about that. Everyone's just talking about <laughs> if he's going to sign with the USC at all. Right. Like, when you'll see him, you know, and if you could see him on, like, the undercard of some FX broadcast. Well, and I think it brings up a, an interesting point in that because this was the last Strike Force broadcast, in a weird way, I felt, like, more engaged with it and, like, Stakes were almost higher than they had been in Strike Force before, which really? is because they did not thing. seem more engaged with it on the production side. No, but I and mean, the ratings like, suggest that you were one of few people who felt more engaged. Well, maybe that's true, but like with every fight, I was like, "Well, okay, uh, how, uh, how is this guy going to do in the UFC? Like, if this guy wins, who does he fight then? Like, what what kind of a con- competitor is he going to be in the UFC?" Which is like to me anyway, brought a a level of interest to the strike force broadcast that I had not previously had for some of their shows. True. And it was because it was ending, which is weird. It's weird to think about that way. Um, yeah. You I start to care was... about uh, the characters in a movie a lot more when they all seem like they're about to be thrown into a volcano. I, I get that, but that's a, that's a twisted appeal. It I says so. something about you personally, that that's the only thing that can get you up for a strike force broadcast. What about Gegard Musasi? Sweet and sassy. Sweet sassy? Yeah. The young vagabond? He's a guy who obviously, I don't think that I'm talking, telling stories out of class to say that he's a guy who saw his momentum slow a great deal over the last couple of years because he was one of these dudes where guys would talk about him on message boards like he was the second coming of whoever, Bruce Lee, Christ, I don't know. But he's a guy that... Michael Dudikoff. Yes. Not second, quite Bruce Lee. Second coming but, of Michael Dudikoff. Yeah. Uh, but as a guy who kind of eh, looked a little bit middling 
during out his during his time in Strike Force. Ended up winning his fight against Mike Kyle, who Showtime I felt like went out of their way to make us feel like he he was going to win that fight. Like I felt like Showtime really wanted us to feel like Mike Kyle had a chance there. Well, maybe they they just wanted it to seem less lopsided from a matchmaking perspective than it did because Mike Kyle was another dude who was ready to get out of there as soon as that choke got locked on his neck. But you're right about about Musashi, and Musashi has always been this kind of dude too, where you at times wonder if he is really interested in the, his career as a professional fighter. Yeah, I remember after he fought Keith Jardine at that Strikeforce event at the Sports Arena in San Diego, and remember he, Jardine took it on short notice, and Musashi was a pretty heavy favorite, and it was right after the Zufa had bought Strikeforce, and. Uh, they fought to a draw. Musasi seemed like he should have won the decision, but it, it ended in a draw, I believe, right? I'm not, I'm not making that up, right? Yes. Okay. I don't have it in front of me, but okay. that well, sounds right. I, we I'm, know Jardine didn't win. He did better than everybody expected. It looked like it was right. going to be like a really bad kind of night for, for Keith I'm Jardine. just saying, had he won, we would know about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I look it up just now. They fought to a draw. Uh, anyway, and then afterwards, though, the thing I remember was being at the press conference and after the press conference was over, and everybody was getting up and leaving, and Musasi was sitting there looking just sad as a motherfucker with his corner man, who was sitting there next to him in his ear, giving him what seemed to be a pep talk. And I went over there to get an interview, and I talked to him, and he was just so down. You know, it was a draw that everyone agreed that he had gotten screwed on. And he was just so upset with his own performance, but also, but upset in a kind of like, fuck this kind of way. Like, like he might just go home and, you know, decide to, to say, screw it and sell the designer jeans out of his garage and not do this fighting stuff anymore. And his corner man was kind of like exasperated. And I made a comment at one point, like, you seem really down. And I thought that that was not a bad fight. And his corner man was like, see? (laughs) <laughs> See, like to, to to get guard as if like, look, I keep trying to tell you, like you you don't have to feel so bad about this, and it, you know I don't know if that's just his personality. It seems like maybe it is. I think some people take it as a lack of motivation. Uh, maybe some of it is that he he needs to kind of get his mind right if he's going to compete with some of those people. But I think that that's one of the things that makes you wonder about the dude. If he was like they talked about him a lot, getting by on natural ability. But I think it also just makes you wonder like if he was. Yeah, I'm going to try out this fighting stuff because I seem to be pretty good at it. I'll go as far as I can go. And then uh, when that doesn't seem like it's as, as much fun anymore, then uh, I don't know. I'll get an office job or something. Yeah, well, we'll be see. Be a tour guide. Well, yeah, worst tour guide ever. <laughs> uh, we'll see, I guess, because, you know, you want to talk about a guy whose stock could plummet. Musasi is a guy who shaped up to be one of these people that we thought was going to set the world on fire. And I could see him kind of going down the drain pretty fast. Do you, th- uh, do you think the UFC would like to have a bunch of these strike force guys come over, all get demolished, and then say, see? I don't know. I don't think they care. Like, why would yeah. they care, really? Like, yeah. Cormier, if he wins, is going to be a big star for them. Obviously, Ron Rousey is already a big star for them. I, maybe the dudes like Safadine and, and Musasi, who are a little bit more fringe characters, would be kind of a, uh, you know, you, you, they, they certainly wouldn't be losing much if those guys didn't cut the mustard when they got over in the UFC. But, I mean, the UFC anymore in, in, the, in the fight promotion game kind of played it smart and has done, has for a long time now where it doesn't really matter who wins and loses. They'll, they'll be able to, to promote whoever comes out of it on top. 
Last thing I want to say before we move off of this this round and on to the next thing. Uh, Tim Kennedy. I like Tim Kennedy. Yeah. Want to see Tim Kennedy do well? Sure. I feel like in a lot of ways, it's almost as if Tim Kennedy is trying to hamper his own mixed martial arts career. In what way? When Tim Kennedy gives interviews, he it seems like he becomes increasingly... Uh, like disaffected and disillusioned, and well, like he's had a tough go, man. Talk about uh, a dude absolutely. nobody wanted to fight in Strike Force. And I, I can completely understand why he uh, was on active duty military service, and then was like, "Hey, I want to be a full time MMA fighter and really focus on that." And then when he came over here to do it, he still only gets to fight a couple times a year. I completely understand him being frustrated. Some of the points he made about the dudes pulling out of the last Strike Force event, uh, you know. I think maybe he overstated some of their or, or thought assumed that some of them were faking injuries more than they were. Uh, but at times, I think that the UFC is going to look at a guy like that at, at some of those interviews and some of the th- comments he's made in the past and say, I don't know if this dude seems like the, the company guy you want. And I mean, I'm yeah, not saying I that, that, see that, but at the that same doesn't time, kill you, yeah. but it doesn't. If the, if the UFC has reason to wonder about you before they even really get into business with you, it's just going to make it that much easier for them to pull the trigger on you if things don't go your way right away. Yeah, but at the same time, he's a dude who could, I think could could easily win a couple of mid-level fights in the UFC and, you know, has a, a, a Brian Stan-ish story. Yeah, that but they, they already could, got Brian Stan. They could, <laughs> we already got one of those. You can never have too many American heroes, man. I agree, but you don't want your American hero to be like, and by the way, my employer is an asshole. Like you want yeah, your, that you know, won't, that you, won't play. Yeah, Brian Stan doesn't do that. And, and I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that Tim Kennedy is wrong when he says some of this stuff. I just, and that's the thing. I think it makes it sting a little more. Sometimes when I see some of his interviews, and even when I've talked to him in the past, he sometimes just want to be like, "Okay, I see your point, but don't say that. Make it a little easier on yourself, you know." But hey, maybe he won't do it, and maybe that's just, you know, that's a. A part of the whole package of principles that you sign on to when you take a guy like that? I don't know. Uh, Let's do tips for a well-rounded fight fan, something we haven't done on the program for some time, and then we'll get out of here. This is the point of the show where Ben and I both uh, uh, suggest something that we've read or seen that that we feel, well, it's it's non-MMA related, but we still feel that you, the audience, will enjoy it. Ben, what, what do you got for us? I am going to recommend a book, and it was a book that was recommended to me by several people after I mentioned, uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before how I really love the Hardcore History podcast by Dan Carlin. He had a series on uh, the Mongols uh, called Wrath of the Khans. That was really great. Uh, And then several people after that uh, recommended a book to me called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, uh, which uh, I went out and got and is... Really, really interesting and entertaining. I will say the author seems to be a little bit of a uh, a Genghis Khan apologist. Uh, maybe downplays the millions and millions of people that Genghis Khan murdered. Uh, and just focuses on the good stuff as if he entirely meant to do all the good stuff. Wow. <laughs> but it's still just a fascinating book filled with uh, a lot of really interesting details. For instance, Chad... How do you think uh, Mongols, who had no written language uh, and yet had a very concise and important-to-follow battle plan, communicated to one another? Uh, you can't pass along written instructions. How do you do it during a battle? Twitter. The Majesty of Song. What? That's right. 
the Mongols. I mean, especially you're growing up in, in Mongolia. You love music, obviously. <laughs> you probably only heard three melodies in your life. Uh, they put all like important battle orders and the, the, the codes of their laws and customs into song uh, and would use kind of the same song. And then so if somebody wanted to add an order... Uh, it's just like learning a new verse to Stairway to Heaven or something. You know, it's pretty easy for you to remember. Filled oh. with interesting details like that. Genghis Weird. Khan in the Making of the Modern World. I recommend it. Uh, I am going to recommend a documentary series that uh, we have both watched. I watched it with my wife a year or so ago. Uh, but it came, re-came to my attention. It showed on television again this week, and, and it reminded me how excellent it is and, and is really worth your time to watch. It's called The Staircase, and it is a murder mystery about a writer in, uh, I think, North Carolina. North Carolina, yeah. Who may or may not have murdered his wife. Uh, but uh, it, it's really interesting. Follows him and his defense team and, to a slightly lesser extent, the prosecution throughout this murder and trial. And Nancy Grace. And, yeah, Nancy Grace <laughs> is also in it. Uh, really interesting. Really gives you a uh, kind of an, an all-access, no-holds-barred look at this guy's defense and his life. And... Uh, and really leaves you wondering yeah. whether or not he murdered his wife. So the staircase, I understand, uh, in the wake of, I guess, what we're calling recent events, they have just added a couple more episodes to it, but it's available, I think, on Netflix streaming. Uh, check it out, The Staircase. It's awesome. As for uh, right now, though, we're going to go ahead and move into round number three. Round three. Well, Ben, Bellator makes its debut on Spike Television this week with a pretty decent fight card. Uh, this is sort of the moment we've all been waiting for from, from I guess, the second most important fight company in the world. Uh, I know you've been all over the story like a fly on shit. What, uh, what's what's <laughs> going on here? What's, Thank you so much. What's going to happen with Bellator? Is, is this... Is it going to break big or is it going to fizzle and no one will care? Okay, so since I've talked to some of the people involved, I'm supposed to be able to predict the future? Bellator is your promotion. <laughs> Bjorn Rebney's your guy. Okay. We know this stuff about you. Here we fucking you. go. Biggest Bellator Here fan in the world. What, we go. What's the deal? Here's, uh, you know, I don't think we need to go on at length about this. Uh, the show's already going to be running long and we're into the, the third round here, so... Here's one of the interesting things, though. We mentioned before about the appeal Bellator now offers to some fighters, both with the tournament, being able to control your own destity, and if you're on Spike now, and you, you know maybe your sponsorship money will go up if the ratings do well. One of the points that uh, was made to me by both Bjorn Revney and Kevin Kay from Spike TV, uh, and I had to admit, it, it was one of those things that when I heard it, it sounded like, Okay, well, that's, you know, a biased take on things, which makes sense from your, your, you know, you have a biased perspective on this. But also, I haven't heard it that much from many other people, so I thought it was worth at least talking about. Uh, both of them said that it seemed that recently people have maybe forgot or underplayed the role Spike TV played in the UFC's success. As Kevin Kay put it, the UFC peaked with pay-per-view sales when they were on Spike TV. That Spike TV was helping them drive uh, pay-per-view buys. Okay. I mean, we They've could point... not been on Spike for a year. Yeah, and, and you could point to a lot of stuff that happened in that Brock year. Brock Lesnar was yeah, there. A bunch of injuries. Uh, you know, you could point to a lot of stuff that had, a, had an impact on that. At the same time, 
if even if you don't think that specific point is true about the peaking in pay-per-view, I think it is worth at least thinking about that. Uh, we do sometimes, in this kind of revisionist history way, look back on it and think, boy, didn't Spike luck out to have got to deal with the UFC and you know help that with our guys' choice first man programming. Uh, it bit right in there. And we don't really think about it the other way around. Like, wasn't the UFC lucky to get on Spike TV yeah. uh, where they had you know pro wrestling and... And especially a channel that would really push them the way Spike TV, where they could say, "Hey, well, a we need to take that all would Saturday." Let them do whatever the fuck they want, yes. which I think is the is and the that was really available. Point. You know, you can, you can do whatever you want on Fuel, and it doesn't fucking matter because no one gets Fuel. Right. Uh, if you do it on Spike, Spike is available widely enough that uh, it does make an impact, and so you know, people got used to that. Hey, Spike is where you can watch fights on Spike at pretty much any given time of day. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it was certainly probably a symbiotic relationship uh, at that point. I think that they probably helped each other as much as you could say that 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 any one entity in that relationship uh, profited. The thing about the UFC, though, is that they really waited and turned down a ton of, or have led us to believe at least that they turned down a ton of other television offers that didn't suit their needs really because people wanted to change their production they wanted to to, you know take the the feel of the ufc broadcast and and kind of take it over and take the power out of the ufc's hands and the ufc always turned them down because of that and they waited uh until they got the deal that they thought felt the best to them and the deal where i think in retrospect it seemed like they were going to have the most control over the overall station and as fly by night as it was at its beginnings, you know, Dana White likes to tell the story that they signed the deal to put the first season of The Ultimate Fighter on some on the hood of somebody's car in an alley because Spike was totally not sure about it. Yeah, they bought it, you know. They, yeah. yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it certainly worked out well, I think, for both, and it, it, it was really advantageous for the UFC because, like you said, it put them in a lot of homes, and it was a situation where they could really control their own destiny in terms that Spike would really kind of bend over backwards to do. Well, especially yeah, whatever, once Spike whatever, saw how yeah, popular it was going to be. Whatever the UFC wanted to do once they got a load of what the ratings were going to be. And I was actually thinking this week as I was contemplating the UFC's Fox deal and how kind of, uh, you know, adversarial Dana White has suddenly turned against, against Spike, calling them spook. <laughs> you know he's always going to come oh, up man. with something. Strike Oof. farce. Yeah, man. I wonder when he thought of that one and was t-shirt like, that's guy. it, spook. Fucking t-shirt guy. Uh, I wonder if they secretly missed that, though. I wonder if they, clearly they're in a more lucrative game now. They are in a whole new world that we have never seen before from for the UFC and MMA in general. They're on much less, well, at the same time, more stable, but also less stable footing in a way. They are not even the same entity that they used to be really in, in a lot of ways. They're a cruise ship. Now it's going to take them a lot longer to turn themselves around and get on the, on the right uh, heading. Whereas before I think they could move really quickly. Uh, I wonder if they miss it. I wonder if they, if part of them is like, God, remember when we were on spike TV and we didn't have to do 35,000 shows a year and we could just say, Hey man, give us all Sunday and we'll put on George St. Pierre fights all day. I yeah. wonder if they miss that control. Well, it's also like for them, uh, especially later in the deal when the UFC's popularity was well-established, being on Spike must have been like 
you know, when you're dating the girl who lives at her parents' house and doesn't have a car, like, she really, she is super into this relationship because it's the only thing she's got going on. She doesn't really have any friends. She can't even go to the mall unless you come over and pick her up and take her. Otherwise, she's stuck there playing Clue with her parents. You know, and then, you know, you, you date some other girl who, uh, you know, she's got a place of her own and she's got a little Honda Civic she drives around in. She's got an active social life. She volunteers down at the soup kitchen. She's got a lot of other stuff and you're just part of it. You know, right. it, there's, a, there's a different power dynamic at work there and there's a, it's, a, it's a different feel uh, when, you know, you're just, you're one of the many successful things we have around rather than, you know, you are the big ticket. Right. You know, one of the interesting things, uh, give you a little little insider thing that I got uh, from your guy, from my guy, from your guy Bjorn. This is not from Bjorn. This is from Kevin K from Spike TV because we were talking about um, the the way Spike TV used the UFC's video library. The way that deal worked was after the end of the UFC's deal with Spike TV, uh, Spike TV still had rights to the UFC video library that it had uh, for an extra year. Uh, unless the UFC decided to buy it back. And the deal was also that Spike TV during that year that it had the UFC's video library um, could not get into business with another mixed martial arts promotion unless the UFC decided to buy back its library. The UFC realizing that it was going to jump in the bed, Spike was going to jump in the bed with Bellator as soon as it was contractually uh, able to decline to buy back that library. At one point, Kevin Case said, Dana White told him, why don't you pay me to take it back? Uh, to it, and I asked Kevin K what he what he said to that. He said, "I replied, you're very funny, Dana." Uh, but there, the way Spike TV used that library was a way that we could have all anybody who knows the way Dana White is knew that they were going to make an enemy there. Right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, when Junior Dos Santos fights Cain Velasquez on uh, the the first Fox event, Spike counterprograms them uh, with, I believe, a bunch of Junior Dos Santos fights. And gets like a million people, a million people to watch old fights on the night when there are live free fights on network TV, which is amazing. Yes. So let's talk about that because it's been floated and I'm sure that Bellator is on board with this idea, uh, but it's been floated by other people that MMA fans are just going to glide right into Bellator because they're used to seeing fights on Spike and they're just going to tune in. I don't know if they're going to think it's the UFC (laughs) or if they're just going to be like, oh, well, this looks different, but it's the same kind of thing that I watched before, which I think plays into this idea that we've we've heard before from people that, oh, people don't know where to find the UFC now. Like they used to be on Spike and that's where they watched it. And now they oh, they don't know. Like these fucking idiots don't know how to use the Internet. Yeah, but come on. That's not real. We encountered the same people on Twitter who will ask you like. Every time, every time there's a UFC event on, on, I'll always get a question on Twitter from somebody who'd be like, what time do the prelims start? Motherfucker, you obviously have access to the internet. If you are asking me shit on Twitter, you also have access to Google. Google that shit. You know, but still. Or the MMA junkie links, which I, not to just shamelessly plug your employer, which we do way too much anyway, but... They've got those things where you can just click on it. It tells you what time everything yeah. starts. Oh, I love that. It's, it's See, great. And... But that's the thing is we think from from our perspective. Again, we're approaching it from the perspective of I rational know, people. I know, but you go- and we, we think like, oh, hey, if you want to know where the UFC went, you, you get on the computer and you figure it out. But I'm sure, and I think that uh, Spike TV's success counterprogramming a Fox, a live 
box event that had been uh, promoted on in football games and playoff baseball and all kinds of shit. It was all over the place, and they still got a million people to watch old fights instead. I think that that was a, one of the things that proved to them that their hypothesis was right, that Spike TV is in a lot of fans' minds, a lot of people's minds, this is where I go to watch fights. And FX just isn't, and you know, Fuel TV, if they even have it, isn't. Uh, and so if you can keep those people around long enough, and get them, like, at first they're just thinking, hey, I'm just watching fights, whatever. And then you get them to kind of realize, like, oh, hey, this is a different thing, and here's what the thing is, and here's why you should keep watching it. You know, if you put on good fights, then, then yeah, people are going to come back next Thursday and see what you got. And it's a good move, I think, for them to move to Thursday. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, what you want to be. It seems like Bellator. a multiple-choice question to me. Is it going to be that, A, Bellator's product is good enough that, people like it and they're able to build off their exposure from spike TV or B are people going to see Bellator and be able to be like, Oh, this is a shittier version of the UFC. I don't like this. Or are they going to see it and see just be like, Oh bro fights. Awesome. Don't care what it is. Just going to watch. And I honestly don't know the answer to that. And that's one of the things that's going to be interesting about this year, seeing what Bellator can do with that spot that they have on spike because Bellator's product is pretty good. Like yeah. they've had good fights. They have decent production values. It's obviously not as good as the UFC, but like, eh. and it, I mean, it's a different product. I think when you are telling people like, and come back this time next week, because here's what's going to be happening. And there's like a thread that goes through there that they can tell you about as it goes. Uh, and the UFC doesn't really have that. The UFC is just like, well, this guy might fight this guy, or we might make some fight that makes no fucking sense at all. And then if you say that it makes no sense, we'll yell at you. All right, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll wrap up for this week. This week, I'm just saying Rampage Jackson went on a conference call and reiterated that this upcoming fight against Glover Tashir will be his last appearance for the UFC, and and we're all wondering, oh, man, what will happen to Rampage next? Where will he land? Where will he go? For my money, maybe it's time we just let Rampage Jackson go. Maybe it's time we just... To hardcore pornography? ...said... Good night, sweet prince, and let him sail off into the sunset of hardcore pornography yeah. or wherever he's going to be headed because I don't know how relevant he is and I don't know what he's bringing to the table at this point. So, hey, hey. man, let's let's just shake his hand, thank him for his service, wish him good luck him a gold with watch? his future endeavors. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm just saying, if I sent to you a link and I was like, if you click this, you will see uh, Rampage Jackson with his, on, now that he's on TRT, he got his doggy style back, and when you click this link, you will see him boning six Japanese schoolgirls. You click that link. No. Yes, you would. Yes. <laughs> I'm just saying that this week, well, today, as of this recording, uh, who knows when it'll be by the time you hear us. Uh, Dana White said to be going undergoing uh, surgery for Meniere's disease. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Meniere's? Meniere's. I don't know. Uh, the, the inner ear disorder that has been plaguing him lo these many months, uh, it involves them basically cutting off his ear and going in there and messing around with some stuff and then, one hopes, putting his ear back on. <laughs> I'm just saying that... If something went horribly awry and Dana White was either killed or maimed so badly that he could not continue on in his capacity as UFC president, I think the Fertitas 
probably have a backup plan, but I would just be secretly hoping that Dana White, if in his the event of his death, leaves his share of the UFC to a house full of stray cats. Because that would make for an awesome Disney movie. I'm just <laughs> wow. saying. Well, you are, in fact, just saying. Nothing in the rules that says a spooky house full of stray, disgusting cats can't own a fight promotion. He's been up for two days straight, ladies and gentlemen. That's Ben Folks. I'm Chad Dundas. He works for USA Today and MMA Junkie. I work for ESPN.com. That's it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week with all the stuff that you know and love. Uh, But as for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Maybe you put Dana White's brain in a jar with like a speaker where it can communicate. And... And the body a, of Joe Silva delivers the message to the masses. Well, I was thinking the, the, the brain would also con- like control a bunch of 